Acts 25, 1-12. through 12. Three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem, where the chief priests and the Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. They requested Festus, as a favor to them, to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem, for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me, and if the man has done anything wrong, they can press charges against him there. After spending eight or ten days with them, Festus went down to Caesarea. The next day he convened the court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. When Paul came in, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him. They brought many serious charges against him, but they could not prove them. Then Paul made his defense. I have done nothing wrong against the Jewish law or against the temple or against Caesar. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court, where I ought to be tried. I have not done any wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. After Festus had conferred with his counsel, he declared, You have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you will go. Good morning. Happy first Sunday of Advent. As we start the Advent season, we're going to continue following the journey of Paul. I want to start, though, with a look back at the angel's announcement to the shepherds. We're starting Advent. Here's what they were announcing. Here's what happened. The big deal that happened, which is why we're celebrating Christmas in a few weeks. I'm celebrating Advent now. Luke chapter 2, verses 10 to 14. The angel appeared to the shepherds. Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy which shall be for all the people. Today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among humanity with whom he is pleased. The angels came when Jesus was born. And remember who they announced to was shepherds. They came first to the shepherds, the outcasts. And their announcement was peace on earth and goodwill to all humanity. Advent, we celebrate Jesus coming as the beginning of peace. But what does peace look like? There are different versions of peace in the world. We're going to talk about them today. One version of peace looks like this. And I like this one. So this is from a 2016 New York Times article. A teacher just starting her teaching career. 
When Kyle Schwartz started teaching third grade at Dual Elementary School in Denver, she wanted to get to know her students. She asked them to finish the sentence, I wish my teacher knew, dot, dot, dot. The responses were eye-opening for Ms. Schwartz. Some children were struggling with poverty. I wish my teacher knew that I don't have pencils at home to do my homework. Some were struggling with absent parents. I wish my teacher knew that sometimes my reading log is not signed because my mom isn't around a lot. Some were dealing with parents taken away. I wish my teacher knew how much I miss my dad because he got deported to Mexico when I was three years old. I haven't seen him in six years. The lesson spurred Ms. Schwartz, now entering her fifth teaching year, to really understand what her, what her students were facing outside the classroom to help them succeed at school. What Ms. Schwartz does so well is she finds a way to listen to her students and walk in their shoes just a little bit, just to learn about their experience and find a, a kind of peace with them by learning to, getting to know them. This is the kind of peace that Jesus brought when he came. He didn't come, right? And the angels didn't come and announce to Herod or to Caesar, hey, the king's been born. They went to shepherds. And Jesus didn't come born in a palace. Where was he born? He was born in a stable. He walked in the shoes of the most downtrodden of human beings. He came as an infant to an unwed mother in an unimportant nation to become a refugee and then grow up in Nazareth of all places and then he was killed as a criminal. He came to make peace by identifying with the lowest of the low and raising us all up to have peace with God and with one another. He was God. He could have demanded our submission, but he didn't. That's not the way of Jesus. All of our relationships can work like this, our close friendships, our marriages, our parenting, our communities, right? We can demand that people uh, agree with us and have peace with us in that kind of way. Or we can listen to them, submit to them, identify with them, and learn to walk in each other's shoes. And that's a more healthy kind of peace. In our passage today, Paul is caught in the Roman legal system. A system designed for the maintenance of peace. But instead of peace, this system was good at maintaining control and the illusion of peace. As we continue to follow Paul's journey, I think we can get some clues on how we might follow Jesus in pursuing true peace on earth, the kind that the, that the angels announced to the shepherds all those years ago. Let's pray and dig into our passage. Heavenly Father, you invite us to peace with yourself because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus, we praise you that you came to identify with us with human beings who were your enemies. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are making peace. You are our comforter and you are empowering us to walk in peace with God the Father and God the Son and to walk in peace with one another. We pray that you would empower us this morning, shape us, continue your work of changing us, that we might be more like Jesus. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Roman peace... The Pax Romana was built on fear, intimidation, violence, threats. There was a kind of peace. That is, there was this illusion of peace, but there was always kind of rebellion uh, under the surface. And Roman peace could not stand rebellion. 
So if you remember the story of Spartacus, if you watch the old Kirk Douglas movie, um, the ones who got the most violent reaction were people, the disadvantaged, who were supposed to be quiet. They got the most violent reaction from the empire. So when Spartacus leads a slave revolt, it's crushed violently. And then anybody who survived was made an example of. That is, if you remember the story, um, 6,000 slaves were put on crosses that lined the roadside from Rome to Capua. 6,000 crosses. As if to say to any slave who might be interested in rebelling, you think you have it bad now? You could be on a cross on the road. The Roman peace was designed to keep the happy people happy, the powerful people happy, and the unhappy people quiet. That's the way Roman peace works. That's the way earthly peace works. Maybe you experienced that kind of earthly peace this week at Thanksgiving, where there are some discussions that you're not allowed to have, and everybody kind of knows it, where nobody mentions the drunk uncle, where uh, your bruises don't get talked about, or your emotional wounds that don't get dealt with. If you experience that kind of thanksgiving, I just want to say, I'm sorry, that's painful. I've been to those kinds of dinners, and that's really difficult. May our Lord give you his peace this Advent season by the grace and power of his son, Jesus. Rod talked last week about the Roman governor, Felix. Felix is the one who has had Paul imprisoned uh, up till our passage today. Felix knew that Paul was innocent, but he didn't let him go. He was hoping for a bribe, remember? That's a version of earthly peace, where Felix keeps Paul in chains for no good reason, but Paul can't do anything about it. But it's at least kind of peaceful because the Jews aren't rebelling and Paul's not dead. So, great, peace. As we look at our passage today, um, I want to uh, point a couple things out. I just want to look at the outline of our passage. So this is, passage kind of occurs in four parts. Verses 1 to 5 is Festus in Jerusalem. Verses 6 to 12 is Festus in Caesarea. Verses 13 to 22 is Festus with Agrippa. And verses 23 to 27 is Festus brings Paul to Agrippa. Now there's one name that you heard me say a lot in the outline of this passage, right? Festus. This passage is all about Festus, the new Roman governor. Now why would Luke write a whole chapter basically dedicated to the Roman governor who's got Paul in prison? What's the point? Why would he do that? Paul is only a minor character in this chapter. He only shows up for a couple minutes and says a couple things. I think Luke's point the reason Luke writes about Festus in this chapter is um, he wants to tell Christians, here's how we need to start thinking in order to try and survive this Roman Empire. We need to think a little differently. What does it look like for us to survive and bear witness to the empire and a nation that opposes itself to the Lord Jesus? How do we do that? So that's kind of the big question that we're asking today. How do we operate, in, uh, operate in, in an empire, in a nation that opposes itself to Jesus? 
So uh, verses 1 to 5, we'll look at them. Festus, this new governor, he's been newly sent by Rome to be the governor over Judea. Felix, the old governor in chapter 24, was called back to Rome because he was a terrible governor. He was awful. Festus is actually a very adequate governor, which very adequate is exceptional for the governors of Judea. There's like one bad governor after another. Festus is decent. Good for, good for Festus. The bar has been very low. So uh, coming to Judea, he wants to do what Roman governors do. That is, get to know the powerful people and get on their good side. Right? You establish, this is the way Roman peace works. You establish good relationships with powerful people, and you keep the unhappy people, or you keep the, uh, yeah, disadvantaged, unhappy people quiet. So the first thing he does is goes to Jerusalem to meet with the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders. Uh, just a quick uh, comment about these Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin. This is from Willie James Jennings, a commentary on Acts. He says, Paul's enemies, the Sanhedrin, represent a circle of faith, but it is faith that's gone bad. Faith can go bad, as the history of Christianity has shown us. When God's people enter into a shared blindness that turns love of God and zeal for the divine into intense hatred and a willingness to kill. Jennings is telling us, look, just because we're sincere in our faith does not mean we're immune somehow to blindness. Are there times where you and I are tempted to disregard a certain kind of person because of our blindness? When our love for God turns into a shared blindness, sincere faith does not make us immune to blindness. Christians led the Crusades against Muslims in Palestine, but also against other Christians in the East. Christians in the 16th century killed other Christians because of theological disputes and political disagreements. Christians in this country owned slaves and fought and killed to preserve the institution of slavery. Being a religious person or a follower of God doesn't keep us from blindness. So how do we deal with blindness then? In order to deal with blind spots, we have to learn to use our other senses. That is, I I would suggest we need to listen well. There's a whole bunch that we can't see. I can't see what's right behind my back, but if there's another person next to me, they can see what's there. They can tell me. That doesn't mean I'll ever see it but they can tell me what's there. If I listen well, then my blind spots can be mitigated. So uh, three suggestions for us. First, I suggest listening to people from other times, places, and perspectives. So for example, for this sermon, I read commentaries from the early church, from the Reformation, and from today. I read commentaries by women, blacks, uh, people from different parts of the world, when we listen to people from, with different perspectives, we can see, we can hear at least, things that we can't see. And uh, just in our world, the way it's set up right now, I ask you, please, beg you, we cannot trust in one news source to receive our news. If you're a Fox News only person, please listen to other sources. Listen to NPR and the New York Times. If you're a New York Times-only person, please listen to the American Conservative and Fox News. 
If you're a CNN-only person, please listen to other sources. There are too many blind spots when we're only listening to one source for our news. It's not that we have to agree with everything that everyone says, but what I think we do have to do is listen, to, listen so that we can hear what we're not able to see. So, listen to people from other times, places, and perspectives. Second, are we really listening to Scripture? Scripture can show us our blind spots if we will listen to it. Scripture is capable of revealing in us stuff that we don't see in ourselves. Um, Too often, I think, we read the same passages or read the same parts of Scripture and we just don't listen to parts that we don't know how to deal with. Or sometimes we don't listen to the Uh, questions that we have about Scripture or the things that make us uncomfortable. We have to really listen to Scripture. Is Scripture really able to speak to us where we are and reveal our blind spots to us? So listen to different people, listen to Scripture. And third, are we listening to those who are disadvantaged and unhappy in our system? Do we listen to people in pain Or do we only listen to people who the system seems to be working for, who are happy and doing well in in this this system? If I only listen to people who give me compliments and encouragements about myself, then I am missing things. Then I have blind spots that I won't be able to see. If we only listen to people who the system works for, then we're going to miss major things about how the system works. Just like the Sanhedrin had their blind spots, they were not ready to hear that they had crucified their Lord. They were not ready to hear from Paul that their hope had come, the Messiah had come. They couldn't hear it. And they did not want anything to do with the Gentiles. They did not want to know that the Gentiles were now invited to the party. They were blind. Their faith had gone bad, and it descended to a blind hatred. Sincere faith does not protect us from blindness. Festus listens to the Jewish leaders, but he rejects their suggestion. They want to move Paul to Jerusalem so they can kill him. He rejects that suggestion. He says, no, we'll keep him in Caesarea for now. So Paul invites the Jewish leaders back to Caesarea and says, hey, I'll hear your accusations against Paul. And they respond and say he's offended against the temple, he's offending Caesar, he's bringing rebellion. And Paul's response is, look, I haven't done any of that. I haven't offended the law, I haven't offended the temple, I haven't offended Caesar. There's no reason to keep me in prison. The growth group guide for this week, uh, my friend Nikki wrote the guide this week, and uh, this is a quote from her. Paul knows, he's very well aware, that we need to recognize that however innocent we are, even by the standards of the world, we may at times be considered guilty against it, not because of actual wrongdoing, but by living according to the kingdom-building way of Jesus that would operate counter to the world at large. This in itself is offensive to those who are not also participating in the kingdom. Christians, we got to be ready. Paul was. So, So the Jews have uh, made these accusations, and Festus says, 
look, this isn't really a matter for Caesar's court. This is a Jewish question. I don't really care. So, Paul, what do you say? Why don't you just go back to Jerusalem and you guys can take care of this yourselves. I don't really care. Doesn't, doesn't impact me at all. Which, from his perspective, is a reasonable question. There's no proof of accusation against Caesar. So Jerusalem would be the proper place to deal with Jewish questions. This question, though, is a crisis for Paul. And here's why. The Jews want him dead. He's not going to trust Festus because Festus is not interested in justice. And he knows God has called him to Rome. Remember a few chapters ago, Jesus shows up in prison and tells Paul, look, you've testified in Jerusalem, now we're going to Rome. So to go back to Jerusalem feels like a step backwards. A couple things here. He knows that the Romans can't be trusted. (laughs) He spent enough time in the system to know how this works, right? Felix kept him in prison just because he wanted a bribe. Festus is only interested in getting on the good side of the Jewish leadership. Caesar, how could he trust Caesar, right? Caesar at this time is Nero, who became known as, you know, the worst of all the Caesars for Christians. Now, at this time uh, in Paul's life, Paul doesn't know how bad Nero is going to become. Nero actually started out as a pretty decent Caesar, but Paul doesn't have any trust for the Roman Caesars. He can't go to Jerusalem, but he can't go to Rome because he doesn't trust them either. Paul's in crisis here. He has no good options. I want to suggest that Paul's response calls the nation of Israel and the empire of Rome to be more than what they are. He calls them to be better than what they've been. He points out to both Israel and Rome, they are failing to live up to their own standards. They're falling far short of the kingdom of God. He tells Israel, look, I haven't done anything wrong against the law or the temple. He tells Festus and the Romans, I've done nothing against Caesar. I'm willing to die if I have done something wrong, but I haven't. And then his response is this dramatic moment that changes the course of his life and changes the course of the rest of Acts. He says, I appeal to Caesar. As a Roman citizen, he has the right at any point to appeal to Caesar, and Caesar then will listen to, to his case. Now, I want to work with you to try and understand what Paul's doing here because it's not actually straightforward. And uh, as we work to understand this, I suspect that Paul is an example here for us about how we might live as Christians in a nation uh, that is not submitted to Jesus as Lord. First, Paul, again, Paul is not trusting Rome. When he says, I appeal to Caesar, it's not that he's trusting Caesar to give him a good outcome. As a Roman citizen, he has the right, but Roman citizenship is not a privilege that Paul flaunts. It's a last resort that he pulls out when he's being abused. That's how he uses citizenship. Second, here and other places, Paul is constantly having to tell the nations how to follow their own rules. Tim Mackey and the folks over at the Bible Project point out that in the last several chapters of Acts, Paul has had to tell the centurion, hey, you can't beat a Roman citizen. 
He's had to tell Felix, look, you got to let me go. You have no reason to hold on to me. And now he's got to deal with Festus, who's ready to take him back to Jerusalem, even though he's got no reason to even keep him locked up. Paul is a better Roman than any of the Romans. That despite the fact that he has not given his allegiance to Rome. He's a better Roman than the Roman representatives. Even though he hasn't said, hey, I trust the Roman system. He's not trusting the system. But he is a better Roman. He's saying, Christians, we can elevate the Roman system. We can seek to live it better than those who are truly Roman want to live it. We can be better than Rome's best. We should be elevating the system, making it better than its inevitable corruption, living out and pointing to the nation's telos, its purpose in Christ. Not for the sake of the nation as system, but for the sake of the people living in the system and for the sake of Jesus our Lord. Paul is a better citizen of Rome than the Romans, despite not giving Rome his allegiance. His allegiance belongs entirely to Jesus, but he will use the system and live faithfully in it, even though he doesn't give his loyalty to Caesar. I was trying to think of examples of people who are doing this kind of thing today in our culture and in the church culture in particular, and I thought of the Me Too, Church Too movements. Um, I don't know how familiar you are with these, but um, Me Too and Church Too are movements of victims of sexual misconduct and sexual violence, especially women, who have been speaking out of the, the abuse they've faced from powerful people, especially men. One of the tragedies of watching all of this has been seeing how much of that kind of abuse has occurred in churches and how poorly church leadership often handles these kinds of situations. Like Paul, victims have to have courage to speak out about abuse, and when they do, they don't trust the system. The system has been protecting their abusers. But they speak up anyway. And they are calling the systems and the church to be what it was called to be in the first place. That is a community of protection for families, victims, a community of healing and grace and safety. Now, most of us might be familiar with the Catholic Church sex abuse scandals, but as we've listened to the Church 2 movement, we've seen that the same kind of thing is happening in evangelical and Protestant churches all the time. Sadly. Churches like Cole. And so I want to point out the work of several folks, uh, women like Rachel Denhollander, who was one of the gymnasts abused by Larry Nasser uh, in that scandal. But she spent a lot of time and energy speaking out about abuse in churches and standing up for victims. And I want to point to uh, groups like the Grace Network, who are exposing abuse within the church and helping victims to find healing. These kinds of folks are calling the church to be the kind of church that Jesus already had called us to be. They're pointing out, hey, you can be better. And I want to say this as well. If you've been a victim of abuse or violence, sexual, domestic, uh, institutional violence or abuse, our prayer at Cole is that we can be a place where all of us can care for one another with our wounds and our hurts. I pray that God may bring grace and healing to you, and I pray that he will use the church to participate in his work of healing. 
May God give all of us the grace and courage to love and care for one another and to be what God has called and empowered us to be by his spirit. Amen. So first, Paul doesn't trust Rome. Second, Paul is a better Roman than the Romans. And third, Paul knows where Jesus has him going. He is going to Rome. Jesus said, Paul, you've done a good job in Jerusalem. Now you're going to Rome. So following Paul, when we run out of good options, when we're left with just a bad option and a worse one, what do we trust in and how do we act? Paul's example would suggest we don't place our trust in nations. We operate as better citizens of the nations than the representatives of the nations themselves. We call the nations to be better than they are. And we keep our eyes on our calling and our purpose. And so, Paul sets his face toward Rome. He's going to have the chance to bear witness to the Lord, the Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, in Rome, before the court of Caesar. Amazing. Okay, so the next two sections are deal with Festus and Agrippa. So, Paul's appealed to Caesar, and Festus has now agreed to send him to Caesar. And Festus goes, oh no, I have nothing to write to Caesar. I have no reason to even have Paul imprisoned, much less do I have charges that I can write to Caesar. Remember, Festus's whole idea of peace is to keep the powerful people happy and the unhappy people quiet. Now he's got an obnoxious, unhappy person in Paul— And he's got to write something to the most powerful person in the empire, Caesar. Paul's just going to be an annoyance to Caesar unless Festus can figure out what to say to make this work. His idea of peace is now being threatened. He's a little bit nervous. So he decides to ask Agrippa. And we're going to talk a little bit more about Agrippa in just a minute. And then next week we'll talk a lot more about Agrippa. But Agrippa is the king... Uh, one of the Herods. He's the grandson of Herod the Great, and uh, he's a powerful dude, and he knows something about the Jews. He's kind of Jewish-ish. And so Festus goes, hey, we can, we can figure this out. You can help me, Agrippa. Write, know what to write to Caesar. So one of the ways that we know, I think, that Paul has a, really made Festus nervous is by looking at his words in chapter 26 here, verses, sorry, 25 here, verses 26 later. So in 25, he's been listening to these accusations, and he's listened to Paul already. And his summary of what's happened is, let's see, it's in verse—I can't find it. Oh yeah, verse 19. They had some points of disagreement about their religion, about a certain dead man, Jesus, whom Paul says is alive. Basically, he's like, look, it's about some dead guy with the Jews. I don't get it. I don't really care. Uh, Whatever. So he's not interested in what Paul has to say. He hasn't really heard Paul. At the end of chapter 26, when Paul presents his message to Agrippa and, and Festus, Festus' response is much more appropriate. He said, Paul, you're out of your mind. (laughs) What are you thinking? Jesus raised from the dead. This is insane. In other words, he finally heard him. This is an appropriate reaction, by the way, (laughs) to the gospel. There are really two appropriate reactions. There's, you've gone crazy, 
Jesus can't be Lord, he's dead. Or, wait, Jesus is alive? If Jesus is alive, then I got to give everything to submit to him. Those are the two appropriate, those are the two reactions that show, oh, you, you heard it, you get it. So Festus, at the end of 26, heard it. 25, he's like, I don't care. No big deal. So Paul's decision to appeal to Caesar has made Festus pay attention. He's starting to really listen to Paul. At the beginning of chapter 25, Festus is just interested in playing the politics. How do I keep peace? How do I get on the good side of the powerful people and keep the unhappy people quiet? the end of 26, he really gets it. God sometimes gives us these kinds of surprising opportunities to hear from one another and from him. Uh, The summer that Grace agreed to marry me when I finally wore her down, we had an opportunity for one of these kinds of conversations. I had been gone all summer, and we were dating long distance at the time, so we didn't actually spend that much time together. And I'd been gone all summer with a Campus Crusade summer project So I got home at the end of the summer, and my brother, Jeremy, was about to head off to school at Arizona State in Tempe. So um, I was like, hey, it'd be great if I could road trip and take him down. And Grace was excited to come with me. And so the three of us were going to go, and then my sister Jackie came too, so it was the four of us road tripping. And there are several things I remember about that trip. One is playing sugar packet football on the table at a restaurant. Another is that it was like a thousand degrees in Tempe. And the third is that I was like, I can't believe anybody would ever want to go to school here. It is so hot. The last thing though, the main thing I remember about that trip was the tension that Grace and I had basically the whole time. We had tension the whole time and it took a long time to figure out what was happening. There was nothing explosive. There wasn't like, again, it wasn't like explosive. Like our peace wasn't interrupted. Our earthly peace, our Roman peace wasn't interrupted. But we weren't at peace with one another. And um, finally, again, speaking of like divine appointments and strange ways that God has of getting a hold of us, we pulled into, we were coming back from Arizona. We pulled into our hotel in small town in Utah, and we get in the hotel, and we cannot find Grace's purse. It's like nowhere. Great. Where's the purse go? So we call around. We start calling, and we find that um, it's a couple hours back at the place where we had dinner. So Jackie stays in the hotel room, and Grace and I drive back and, and go grab the purse and then come back. So we've got like hours <laughs> to figure out What's going on? And when we talked it out, we figured it out. I was excited about spending time with my brother and got resentful that Grace wanted to be with me. And Grace was resentful that I wanted to spend so much time with Jeremy and wasn't uh, paying much attention to her. So we were able to work it out eventually and seek forgiveness and uh, actually come to peace. But that kind of earthly peace where you're pretending to be at peace just is not peace, is it? Sometimes you need those divine appointments in order to survive. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) So in chapter 26, Festus and Agrippa are going to have a chance to really listen to Paul. Okay, the last couple of verses, 23 to 27, 
are fun. So I'm going to read those. On the next day, so Agrippa's done talking to Festus. On the next day, when Agrippa had come together with Bernice with great pomp and had entered the auditorium accompanied by the commanders and the prominent men of the city at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus says, Agrippa, with all you gentlemen here present with us, behold this man about whom all the people of the Jews have appealed to me, both at Jerusalem and here, loudly declaring that he should not live any longer. But I found he had committed nothing worthy of death, and since he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to send him. But I have nothing to write about him to my lord. So I brought him before you all, and especially before you, Agrippa, so that after the investigation has taken place, I might have something to to write, something to say to Caesar. For it seems absurd to me to send a prisoner, but not indicate what the charges against him are. (laughs) It's a goofy scene. Um, A couple couple of notes. We're going to spend a lot more time on this next week. Chapter 26 is Paul's defense. But a couple of notes here. First, Agrippa and Bernice are brother and sister. They are Jewish royalty. They are the kingmakers. Agrippa has the power to uh, designate who the high priest is in the temple. Like, they are powerful in the Jewish community. They also may have had an incestuous relationship. That's the rumor. Bernice's marriages to other men don't seem to last very long, and they spend a lot of time together. Nothing confirmed but kind of an awkward relationship to look at, at least. Second, they, again, their royalty, they come into this scene with great pomp. Like, imagine crowns on their heads and decorations and a feast and the best clothes. Like, this is a big ceremony. This is a big scene. Great pomp. Prominent people. The word that my translation translates pomp is the Greek word phantasia where we get our word fantasy. Uh, It means like magnificent in appearance. It's related to words like becoming visible and for ghost. The idea that Agrippa and Bernice, the idea here is that they're coming with great appearance and they may or may not have any substance. Another quote from Nikki from our growth group guide for this week. Earthly power needs to be displayed and flaunted in order to command respect. Recall the extreme pomp and extravagance that was displayed when the full court assembled for Agrippa and Bernice to hear Paul's case with Festus. In contrast, Paul appeared to them like a powerless, aging prisoner, yet was actually a mighty spiritual warrior and world influencer. Paul's legacy on history has far outlasted the legacy of those who sat in judgment of him. Compare Agrippa and Bernice to Paul. He is a powerless aging prisoner in chains with no wealth hunted by his own people. He's one of those disadvantaged outsiders that we talked about earlier. No status, no power. Paul and the Christians of his time and place aren't just listening well to those who are disadvantaged, They are the ones who are disadvantaged and powerless. By the standards of Jerusalem and Rome, Paul has nothing, just like Jesus. Jesus' life starts with him as a disadvantaged baby in a difficult family, terrible circumstances, and ends with him as a criminal dying on a cross. He chose that kind of life. Jesus could have come any way he wanted to come. 
He chose powerlessness, weakness, to be an outcast without privilege. And when he spoke, he announced blessing and life to the poor in spirit, to those who mourn, to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He chased after peace by sacrificing himself for humanity. He pursued peace by emptying himself for us. He made himself nothing so that we might have life. Paul's chains are just following Jesus' way of life. While, while Agrippa and Bernice are showing off their wealth and power, Paul stands before them in chains, following his crucified Lord. Paul is pursuing after peace in a Jesus kind of way. He's not demanding that others agree with him. He's testifying to the truth while he's in chains. He has taken the path of emptying himself in order to pursue love and grace for others. He is seeking after peace on earth like the baby born to die on a cross. When the the angels announced peace to the shepherds, they were saying that heaven's kind of peace has come to earth in a powerless, weak, outcast infant who identifies with the disadvantaged. Heaven's kind of peace works this way. It's a ministry of reconciliation where God is bringing his enemies into relationship with him. He's bringing the weak and the poor into relationship with him. While earthly peace tries to prevent disagreements and rebellions by silencing the oppressed and disadvantaged through threats of violence or manipulation, heaven's peace comes to earth identifying with the weak and making the voices of the disadvantaged sing with hope and triumph. So as we enter this Advent season, may we live out Christ's peace on earth and not settle for an earthly imitation of peace. May we reject the kind of peace that is built on pretending that our disagreements don't exist or that sticks around because of threats, fear, and intimidation. May we seek to eliminate our blind spots by listening to people who can see what we can't see. May we not trust in people or institutions except for in God himself and instead invite our nation and our communities to be better than they are. May we unsettle the comfort of the powerful with the truth of our risen Lord, and may we choose to associate and identify with the weak and poor and outcast people, just as our Lord did when he came to earth. As we enter Advent, may our Lord fill us with his peace, and may he use us to bring his peace to our community. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise. Your way of bringing peace is so far beyond our imaginations and what we would have thought up. You are a creative, loving, amazing God. Thank you for listening to us when we had nothing to recommend us. Jesus, thank you for coming to die for us while we were your enemies. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are remaking us and we ask that in this Advent season, you would continue your work of pointing us to Jesus and making us more like him. Father, Son, and Spirit, we praise you and we love you in the name of Jesus. Amen.